got the chance uh, to preach a Sunday because I feel, I don't know if some of you guys feel this, I'm assuming, I'm making some assumptions that you might feel this um, in Christmas time, especially I think as I get older and I have kids, we're going to go see grandparents, I'm getting in a car tomorrow to drive to Florida. Um, the season truly gets really busy and there's also a lot of excitement attached to it. Um, seeing family um, uh, is fun and I'm excited to go do that and we've got presents and you've got time off and if you're teaching, you've got time off and, and for a lot of us also, this season is a difficult one um, filled with memories that are tough um, and so there's a lot that can stand in our way from seeing the beauty and glory of the story of Jesus that God came to earth. And uh, I'm always going to have trouble with this mic, so you guys can bear with me, and it'll be okay, and we'll get through it. Um, so as I got um, into this passage, um, I believe God hit me with just another um, appreciation um, and more joy in who he is and what he's done. So I would love to get into this passage, go straight into it, um, but before we do that, this series that I'm preaching, I know we have got a lot, a lot of guests here, um, is still Advent. And so we are still preaching through Advent. Um, and I just wanted to stop really quickly and just remind ourselves of what Advent actually means. Um, it's pretty simple. Advent comes from a Latin word, which simply means arrival or the coming. So something has arrived. Um, and uh, I think that's important because I think it gets at the heart of the gospel. Um, because if something has arrived, um, that means there's news. And what we're saying in Advent is we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And that is news, and it is news of great joy. It is good news. Um, at the heart of the gospel is not commands to follow or doctrines to agree with. It is good news. Something has happened, and as a result of that something, everything's changed. So that's important for us to understand that as we celebrate Advent, we're celebrating news that we're telling the world is great news. So <clears throat> what has arrived? And that's the biggest thing that as I dived into this passage, what was striking to me is what I realized, what has arrived when Jesus came. And so there are three things that I'm that I'm seeing in this passage that I think God is showing us in the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of a great salvation, a new world order, and an unexpected revolution. A great salvation, a new world order, and an unexpected revolution. And we find these wonderful things as we dive into the story of Simeon. Um, and so Simeon is a, an amazing man, um, so interesting, and we're gonna see his actions are very abnormal, things that usually God likes to do. Um, so I'm gonna dive into it. We're in Luke chapter two, verse 22, if you wanna follow along with me. Um, I'm gonna read, I may interject a few things here and there, but I do wanna dive into this story. So um, Mary and Joseph, they have Jesus, the verse before 21 says at the end of the eight days, he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, God saves, um, and the, the name who was given by the angel. And so then after that, in verse 22, we pick up and it says, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male 
who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. I want you to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that later. So remember, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Before we get to Simeon, I just want to make the point that what's interesting is where this law comes from is in Leviticus, and it doesn't actually say to bring those turtle doves um, or a pair pair of young pigeons. It's supposed to be a lamb, but there's a caveat at the end. It says, but if you don't have enough money, basically a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons will do. So this is speaking to the state of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She didn't have enough money even to offer the appropriate sacrifice for the king of the world who came into the world as God. His mom didn't have enough money to do the appropriate sacrifice. So that tells us a little bit about where we're headed. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem. I would have loved to known this man. Whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And the Lord's Christ means God's anointed one, the Messiah, the coming one. God promised the Israelite people would come to save them. And it basically means king, God's king. So he was waiting um, because the Holy Spirit told him he wouldn't see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. I do also want to stop here and say um, what Simeon was waiting for is really important. There were a lot of Jews, even devout Jews in that day, that were all waiting for the Messiah because they had been 400 years without prophets speaking to them, and then they had been under oppression of many empires, and finally they're under oppression of Roman Empire, who were ruthless, and they allowed the Jews to do what they would, they would do, but if there was ever an uprising, it was easily smashed. And so many of the Jews were waiting for this Messiah, this coming anointed one of God, who would finally set them free from the oppression of, of the Roman Empire. Um, and God was going to send a Messiah, but I think Simeon understood uh, more of what was coming. It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's interesting about that word consolation, it's the same word we find in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, consolation, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. And then it says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So I'm wondering if we view Jesus' coming or Advent as the great comfort. Is that how we see him? And is that how the Jews were looking to the Messiah, to be the comfort And I think that was Jesus' intention because we are going to see who he came for, how he came, and what he was looking to do. And so then we see even 
this was prophesied back in many passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 49 says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on, the, on his afflicted. These are prophecies pointing to the Messiah. And again, in, in Isaiah 51, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and a voice of song. It's kind of what I'm pointing to of connecting with the great joy of the message of Christmas. This is what they were looking forward to. And I believe it got lost in many ways, but um, Simeon understood what he was looking for. Um, the the uh, famous theologian and uh, martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. As we pick up this story of Simeon, who is waiting for the consolation of Israel, I love that as Jesus and and Mary and Joseph walk into the temple, this man comes out of nowhere and just, give me that baby. <laughs> they, like, the only way that God can do, it's like, okay, here's this baby, and he starts to prophesy. He starts to speak a song over this baby. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people, all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We see here at the end a light to the revelation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. This is encompassing all peoples. He was saying, Simeon was prophesying, Jesus was prepared plainly in flesh and blood before all people and what many people, many of the Jewish people had lost was the reality that the Messiah would bring hope to the Gentiles and glory to the people of Israel because the savior of the world would come through the line of Israel, would come through the line of David. And so that's their glory, that not it would just save their people, it would save Israel from Roman oppression, but that it would save the whole world. It was much bigger in scope than many Jews understood or, or, or saw in that moment. And Simeon saw it. But I want to point out um, one important verse in verse 30. Um, as Simeon is holding the baby Jesus and singing this prophetic song over him, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And I think it's really important to rest on that and understand that as he looked at Jesus, he saw Jesus as our salvation, not even just what Jesus would do for us one day, or his teachings that we would follow, but he himself, the very person, the life, the death, and the continued resurrection life of Jesus is our salvation. And we see a little bit of that um, in John 14, 19, as Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he's about to go to his death, he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. There's so many passages in the New Testament to describe a believer, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, 
in terms of union with Jesus. Our hope is not simply that we believe that he died for our sins. That's essential to it. And our hope is not that we would obey him perfectly. Our hope is that we are united to Jesus through faith, through believing that he has forgiven us and brought us into fellowship with God himself. So that if Jesus lasts forever, we're gonna last forever because we're united to him. And I know that can be a, a little nuanced, but I think it's, it's, a, it's an extremely important for us to understand that our salvation is the very person of Jesus and that as we trust in him, he brings us into fellowship with himself, gives us his Holy Spirit. And that fellowship that we have with God through that act, through Jesus' life and his death and his continued life is our hope. It's our hope for our salvation now um, and it's our hope for the future that God has prepared for us with him. So as we continue down, his um, father and his mother, mother marveled at what was said about him. And they've already been through a lot here. They've already had some angel visitations. They've already had a few things happen with Jesus, and they were still marveling because it continued. I think they're starting to believe that this baby was a little different than most. And Simeon again blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, um, a really important prophecy, and we're going to hang out here for the rest of the time. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the, for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And this is where I see the advent or the arrival of a new world order because people are falling and people are rising. And so who is this? What are, we, what are we thinking about? What are we looking at here? And I think the easiest place to start is we go back to Mary in, in chapter one of Luke after it's revealed to her that the Christ, the Messiah would be born to her through the Holy Spirit. She sings a song. And this is how her song goes. For he has looked on, on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Think about the way that Jesus entered the world. We're talking about God's anointed one. We're talking about God himself coming into the world. He came as a baby, the most vulnerable thing you could come as. Um, he came born to poor teenage parents. Um, he came in a uh, town, Bethlehem, that was not thought highly of. And he was born in a barn. And he came as the ruler of the world. And I think this is only something God can do um, to show his power and his might by coming in such weakness. Because when Jesus came, he had no status and he had no power and his family had no status and no power. They had no hope to overthrow anything in the eyes of the world. There was no conquering king born in a barn in Bethlehem 
to a no-name teenage poor parents. Um, but it's also displayed in who he came to. Uh, first, to tell the news, the shepherds who were not thought highly of, um, shepherds in a field, and they hear the, the good news of great joy. God is making this point over and over again that he uses the weak of this world to shame the strong. And we, even when we fast forward to 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, I know Steve's been making this point. It says, as Paul is talking to the Christians, he says, but he, God chose what's foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I think that's interestingly displayed even before when I told you to put a pin in it where they came up to offer the sacrifice because it was instructed every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy or set apart to the Lord. So it was showing the importance of the firstborn. And that was not uncommon in ancient society that the firstborn was to be the one granted the blessing, granted the authority, granted the power to stand in power and to know that he is above those um, around him and his family. Um, but what's interesting, even though that was the instruction, if you look back in the story of Israel, God has this amazing MO, he's this amazing um, theme of choosing the lesser to do his work. And he has this amazing theme of using the second son or the eighth son. It wasn't Cain, it was Abel. Uh, it wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. It wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. Reuben wasn't even the firstborn. The major player from the sons of Jacob was Joseph. He was the last. And we have so much of the Joseph story displaying the power of God. And then there's an interesting passage, <clears throat> even Joseph even though he saw what God did through him as the, as the youngest child, definitely not the firstborn, he had two sons. And there's a passage in Genesis 48 at the end when Joseph brings his two sons for Jacob, his father, to bless his sons. So Jacob is blessing his grandsons, and this blessing is to show who has the birthright. So it says, when Joseph saw that his father laid, um, so I'll set up the scene for you, Joseph had um, Ephraim, and he had Manasseh. And he put Ephraim and, and Manasseh in front of him. And what Jacob did, um, what Joseph did, was put his two sons in front so that Jacob's hand was on the oldest son. His right hand was on the oldest son, which was how they blessed. But when it came to bless the oldest son, Jacob, who couldn't see, he didn't have any vision, crossed his hand to bless the younger son. And Joseph said, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall, be, shall become a multitude of nations." And you go on, Moses, not a firstborn. David, the one through whom the Messiah was to come, 
the one that most prophecies said that Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. And David was the youngest son, and God decided that he was gonna do it this way, that the weakest, the shepherd out in the field, the one that his father didn't even bother to bring him to be blessed as, you know, there's not even a chance that he's gonna be king. But that isn't what God saw, and that's not what God decided. And I think what one thing, as I've sat on this, that I feel God is trying to teach us in this, um, is that Jesus was the firstborn. But he was, he was the firstborn of God, the only one that was able to use his power and status the way God intended. Jesus wielded his authority as a firstborn to serve, to love, to lay down his life so others could live. God uses the secondborn and the eighthborn, it seems almost to make a point of how our pride and desire to lord our authority over others ruins everything, but Jesus showed us the way of the new world order. His strength was in his dependence in the Father. His strength was his ability to serve instead of lord his power, his rightful authority over those around him. And so we even see this displayed um, in a wonderful story when his disciples were getting to know him. Uh, two of his disciples, James and John, came to Jesus and he said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And I love Jesus. He said, well, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't say, well, that's, I tell my three-year-old that's not how you ask. Um, and she, she's still learning that. Um, but uh, he didn't even respond that way. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And when the 10 heard it, the other disciples out of the 12, says they became indignant at James and John. So would I. It's like the weirdest thing to do. It's pretty arrogant. Um, And Jesus called his disciples to him, and I love this. He said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And then this line, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is bringing in the reality of God's kingdom where we in our world see authority and power is almost inherently bad because our hearts are wicked. We're broken from the design we were meant to live in when God made us to reflect his image and shine out into the world what he's like. Instead, when we get power and we get authority, we do like Jesus said, we lord it over others. We serve ourselves. We destroy the image of God that was intended. But in Jesus, he brought the upside-down kingdom. Many theologians have said it's an upside-down kingdom. I think it's the right way up, but we're used to the upside-down. We're used to the strong standing over the weak. We're used to those who have power exercising it for their own good. And Jesus came breaking that down, and he says what will last forever 
is the kingdom of God. And what that looks like is that the first are last and the last are first. And that the greatest is a servant. And so he flips things upside down. And if anyone had told you or would have told you that this was his strategy, his ministry strategy, or his strategy to take over the entire world with the message um, to lay down his life, that was his plan, um, we would have not uh, bet for him. We would have said, this is not going to work. This is not how a kingdom comes. And what's so interesting um, is uh, there's, a, there's a guy named George Ellen Ladd, and he says about the kingdom of God, this new thing that, God, that Jesus was bringing into the world, says, yes, the kingdom of God is here, but there is a mystery, a new revelation about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here, but instead of destroying human sovereignty, it has attacked the sovereignty of Satan. The kingdom of God is here, but instead of making changes in, external, in the external political order of things, it is making changes in the spiritual order and in the lives of men and women. Because Jesus knew that his plan was the kingdom of God that was as small as a mustard seed, but would grow into a large plant where birds could rest. His plan was that as the hearts of men and women were transformed into the image they were meant to live into, that the world around them transforms. And when we don't want to do it God's way and we skip the transformation that comes from life with Jesus and we decide that the way to make things right is to take power and to set up our system that we think works best, we'll never see the kingdom of God come. But when we humbly expect God to move and submit to him in his way, we see the kingdom of God advancing in our lives and we, we see things change in us, but not just in us, but around us for the good of the world. And so, <clears throat> also what Jesus showed um, very clearly is who he came for. He came to save those who needed a savior. And even today, if we don't need a savior, we won't find the salvation of Jesus. But if we know how much we need saving. The, the news of Christmas, the advent of Jesus, the Messiah, is great news to us because we need saving. And that's why I think Jesus, in his most famous sermon, he sits down in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He's saying the, the kings of this world who have everything and have all the power, the religious leaders that have money, status, and respect, they aren't the ones that are blessed because they don't know that they need a savior. The ones who are blessed are the poor. The ones that are blessed are like Mary, the ones who are blessed are those who have very little. And so in Jesus' offer to lay down your life, to sell all you have and come find the kingdom of God, that offer for them was an easy exchange. 
But for the rich young ruler, it was a thing that made him go away sad. But God said, it doesn't matter with, with God, what Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. So even those that have a lot in this world, Jesus had everything in his hands. He had all power, all authority. When someone asked him, Peter asked him for a tax, he said, go take a fish out, there'll be a coin in his mouth. He didn't, he didn't worry about money. He said when he was on the cross, he could call down legions of angels. He had it all and he laid it all down because he knew the kingdom of God. And he was calling us to understand that those who are poor, those who mourn, those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst will find the news of Christmas, the news of the good news of the kingdom of God, a great joy. But if we get caught up in the things of this world and we set up a nice life for ourselves and we fail to see the grand story that we're living in, um, we are at risk of missing this blessing that Jesus said as he sat on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and the last thing that I want to focus on is Simeon says, yes, he's appointed the rise and fall of many. The humble will be exalted. The prideful will be brought low. That's the rise and the fall. But he also said Jesus would be a sign that would be opposed. A sign that would be opposed. Almost speaking the imagery of a target. Um, that this is what Jesus would be. And that's where I think we see an unexpected revolution. The definition of a revolution, I just Googled it, so you could find a different definition, but this is one I had. A forcible overthrow of a government or social order in favor of a new system. A forcible overthrow of government or social order in favor of a new system. When any revolution starts, any human revolution, there's been many great revolutions in our time. We have the American Revolution rebelling against the tyranny of the English Empire, um, the French Revolution rebelling against the monarchy that was oppressing the people. When any revolution starts, it will always be opposed. In every human example, they have all been opposed, some successful and others thwarted. The revolution that Jesus started, sustains, and will complete is against the spiritual powers of this world and the human entanglement with those powers. The way of love and humility will not happen without opposition. There is a reason why things are that the way they are. Um, an author, John Eldred, says, we live in a love story set in a world at war. And the question is whether we believe that. Um, because the stories that we believe, the story we believe about our reality will directly affect the way that we live. I think it's so important to understand the importance of story, to know where we are and what part we have to play. Someone that I think knew story maybe better than anyone was an author named C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote with um, great intelligence, sharpness, but he also wrote some of the best fiction, uh, secular or Christian, it's all agreed upon, some of the best fiction out there. Um, and he was a devout follower of Jesus. And he 
This is what he says about Christmas. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. 1 John 3.8, a friend of Jesus, nearing the end of his life, wrote, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This new way that Jesus is bringing and revealing to the world, to Israelites and Gentiles alike, was a new way, and it wasn't coming in a vacuum. There were established spiritual powers oppressing all that we see around us, and Jesus knew this was the story that he stepped into. And if we don't think it's opposed, we can just simply think about what's the first thing happened when Jesus was born. Hundreds of babies were murdered just to try to kill him. Immediately as he came onto the scene, the powers that be, Herod, who was the ruler of the Jews at the time, was so intimidated to hear that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, might be here, that he decided to kill every child under two just to try to get rid of Jesus. We live in a story set in a world at war. And when we, when I was reading some of the stories of the great revolutions, um, human revolutions of our day, um, there was a quote in one of the articles I was reading and this is how they define these great revolutions. This is the, the first phrase that came. Uh, they said, through, blood, through bloodshed came change. And whether it was for better or for worse, there is no denying the importance of such pivotal moments in our history. Through bloodshed came change. All of the great revolutions in our history use the force to try to overthrow the oppressive rule that was on them. They had to use violence. But Jesus' revolution was totally different than all the others. His revolution, his great defining moment, was the king of kings, the one with all authority and power, laying down his life for his enemies. There was bloodshed and it was his own bloodshed. And through his own bloodshed, he was communicating that this new way of being will continue through us. That we overturn the works of the enemy, we destroy the works of the devil by following Jesus into the same ministry that he was a part of. N.T. Wright says, a new story, a new sort of power will be let loose in the world. It will be the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. You cannot defeat the usual sort of powers, powered by the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another, it's still force that wins. Rather, the heart of the victory of God over all the powers of this world lies in self-giving love. 
I was talking to my boys, Caleb and Beckett, um, about what a revolution is. And we go back to the, the, um, the definition, a forcible overthrow of government or social order in favor of a new system. We were talking about revolution and we were talking about stories and I love stories and I love good books and I love good movies. And they have just been watching the Star Wars movies, which if you haven't watched them, you're welcome here. Um, even though we can't relate, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, <clears throat> the Star Wars story, and they just had been watching, um, and you've got an evil empire, you have Darth Vader uh, coming on the scene, and then you've got the light side of the force overtaking, you've got the rebels coming to overtake um, the evil empire. And so we were talking about that, and Beckett was catching on. And then I asked Beckett, and I was talking to Beckett about how Jesus started this revolution to overthrow the works of the enemy, to bring good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to open the eyes of the blind, um, and to bring the kingdom of God onto earth into enemy territory. And then so I asked him, well, Jesus started the revolution. Who's carrying on the, the revolution now? And in a, very quickly, in an eager effort to get it right, he said, God, Jesus, us. And, and, I, and I stopped and I was like, God, Jesus, I was looking for us, but I think he's right. Who carries on this revolution? God, Jesus, us. God, Jesus said to his friends in John 20 as he's about to leave the earth, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So he's telling his follower, followers, the same way that my father sent me into this world to destroy the works of the enemy, to see the oppressed set free, to see sin destroyed, because we're lying under the captivity of sin. And Jesus sets us free from that sin. He forgives us and he ushers in a new way of life by the Spirit. So we do not have to take, we do not have to steal, we do not have to defend ourselves, we do not have to oppress others to get what we want. We can trust we have a loving Father and that nothing on earth or in heaven will separate us from this love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is what we have in Christ. And because of that, we can love. We can give. We can live in the same way that he did, but not just with the self-giving love, but with the power and the authority to destroy the works of the enemy. He lived with power and authority. He saw people healed, and he saw people set free from demonic oppression. And he says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. That is what he has for us. We are the ones to carry on his revolution. And I think at the heart of that is to understand it isn't up to us. Like Beckett would say, it's God, Jesus, us. He gives us his spirit and he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That what I am doing, what you are doing in this world is the power that is only displayed through weakness. Because Paul said later in his life, after he had done many, many, many miracles, Paul said, um, when I am weak, I am strong. When I am weak, I am strong. He understood just in the way that we see how Jesus came. It isn't our strength, it isn't our accomplishments, it isn't even where we feel like we're at in our life or if we're 
good Christians right now. It is understanding that it's his power that works through us and that if we feel weak, if we feel like we don't have a lot to give, we're in a great spot because that's who Jesus works through. That's who God has always worked through. He has always worked through those who knew or didn't expect like they had what it took. Um, But God shows them through his power that all things are possible. Jesus said in John, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. When God calls us to step into the same work that Jesus is doing, we have to expect that there will be opposition. If what Jesus stepped into was a world at war, if he stepped into enemy territory to overthrow the rulers and powers of this world, we can expect the same thing if we choose, if we want to step into that ministry that Jesus brought. It says um, that um, Jesus told Paul, I came to tell you to open open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So when we decide to step into that, we understand that, we've talked about this, there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is opposition. Our flesh is bent to the same way of the world to get ours to take care of us and to not worry about those around us. And then the world is ruled by the enemy and we have a real supernatural enemy, the reason why we're in the place that we are. And these aren't separate things. They all work together, they're intertwined. And if we are going to step into that, then we know there's gonna be pushback. At the end of Simeon's um, prophecy, he says a sword will pierce through your side also, talking to Mary, and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He was pointing to the fact that this mission that Jesus brought, it was gonna end in sorrow for her Um, but it was gonna be worth it. And at the end, there would be a revealing of the thoughts and hearts of many to understand what is really happening and who's really in charge. And when we experience the kingdom of God in our own lives, we understand that the unseen places of our allegiance and trust in Jesus will be constantly pushed back on but we also need to understand that we aren't the ones standing in defense. We aren't the ones putting up walls. Actually, we're the ones that the enemy is terrified of in the same way that he was terrified of Jesus. So as we look at the whole picture of what we've talked about, Jesus has arrived, he has come to be our salvation, to set us free from Satan, sin, and death, to forgive our sins by his own death. And he has come to establish a new world order where the first are last and the last are first. 
where the greatest among us is a servant and where power and authority isn't a means of oppression, but a means of service, love, and sacrifice. To lift up the lowly, to break the chains and set captives free. And as this revolution continues and this new world comes into our old world, the old is passing away. There's a new that's come, and that's one of the biggest things God put in my heart, is that in this Advent, in Jesus coming, the new has come and the old is passing away. But it's not yet. We still have the old clinging. We still have oppression. We still have the hurting. We still have our own lives and all the ways that we are longing for the kingdom to come. But the new has come and the old will pass away. But God's kingdom will last forever. And as this new world order is taking ground, there will be a, a oppression and opposition. But that's why Jesus told Peter when he was going to start his church through him that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Gates are meant to keep things out. And Jesus was telling Peter that those gates will not be able to stand against his church. We are advancing and we are taking ground of the enemy. We are not ones with walls up. We are, not the, we are the ones tearing down the walls. The ones seeing people step out of darkness and into light and becoming that very agents of light that set them free. And this is all of us. It's my story and it's your story for those who have stepped into life with Jesus. And this is Jesus' heart for us to live as he lived. He came saying, he was here to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery to the sight of the blind, and to destroy the works of the enemy. And my heart for myself and my heart for Hope Church is that we would be a group of people actively participating in this unexpected revolution every day. That we would be a group of people that live with Holy Spirit power to see people healed from demonic oppression, physical illness, and that we would be people who, with Holy Spirit power, step into each day willing to fight in the unseen, unglamorous ways of self-sacrificial love that looks like forgiveness, kindness, integrity, mercy, gentleness, boldness, and love, all while we pursue to make disciples of Jesus who do the same exact thing. And as we do that, I, I'm hoping, praying, that our faith would grow, that understanding when we step into, in trust and in love of our Savior, into those unseen days, that they are not normal, boring, common days, but that each day we trust Jesus, his kingdom is coming through us, and that we can expect more from him. And as we feel the opposition, we remember it's because we are the ones advancing in his, into his enemy, enemy territory, not because we are sitting behind walls being attacked. There is fear from the kingdom of darkness because of who you are. And even if we feel like we're not advancing, we, we still feel the opposition, and we feel that because we have an enemy who knows who we could be if, if, he, if we stepped into the freedom that Jesus offers us the authority that he offers us, the power that he offers us. And our enemy will do anything, anything to keep us from living fully into the way that God designed us to live in Christ, to come alive 
to our intended design and to bear the image of God in this world and to usher in his kingdom to see the end when Jesus will come and make all things right. There will be no cause of wickedness or lawlessness. Every tear will be wiped away. No more sickness, no more death. And so many of us feel today even the opposition of the enemy in our lives. Um, And as we step into it, um, I would just really encourage us to not be disappointed, to not be discouraged, but to know that it's to be expected. But the joy of seeing the kingdom come is better than anything we could ever hope for. Have the music team and the prayer team come up. I'm realizing and convicted now of one of the bigger things that I think um, keeps us from stepping into this life and, and believing that this story is true for us, not just that Jesus came and we're so glad he came so we can go to heaven with him, but that he started a revolution that we carry on with him, a life of adventure, a life where we are displaying the same things that Jesus displayed. I think our enemy desperately wants us to tell us it's not worth it. We just need to play it safe. We need to get our lives in order, live in the comfort that is available to us and don't rock the boat. Um, Because when we do and we step into that ministry, we know there will be that opposition. But I think there's also the lie that that's not what's available to us, to fight in the same way that Jesus fought, or even that that story is too good to be true, that this story that we are living in today, not just that happened 2,000 years ago, but that this story is for us today, and then the same way that Jesus came, that we enjoy the life that he brought, we enjoy the redemption, brought back into fellowship with God, able to live in the same way of Jesus. It's not available for us. It's not available for me, at least because I'm an absolute mess and I just can't get it together. I can't get through my Bible reading plan. How will I heal people and see the demonic released and see um, the lives around me changed by the simple ways that I love, by the simple ways that I trust now that I have a savior who loves me and is with me and a father who cares for me and that I can love in those simple ways, that it's not worth it and that it's not available for us. And one of the verses I wanna end with that um, really captivated me is in Romans 16, um, Paul was encouraging some believers in Rome who were living in that obedience, the simple obedience of loving one another in the way that Jesus taught them to love. And it was simple and it was profound because the world that they lived in didn't know what that was about. And here we are today, No power, no status, no organized government of Christianity. And 2,000 years later, we're meeting in a church in Houston, Texas, and that happened in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. God's kingdom is real. His spirit is real. Jesus is alive. And when we trust him, we can expect the same sort of things to happen. But it's hard when we have to live tomorrow trusting Jesus. And thinking about that Roman church, that was living and trusting Jesus in that day, they didn't see billions of people later 
They didn't see Houston, Texas, completely across the world, us gathered here together to rejoice in Jesus, but they were still obeying. And Paul, to encourage them, simply says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace, I love that, will crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet, my feet. He will establish his kingdom through us. An amazing setup. I wouldn't have done it. It seems like a bad plan, but that's what he's doing today. And if we have just a little bit of faith, Jesus says a lot of things are possible. If we have the faith of a little child, if we start to believe even a little bit more that our lives are so much more than what this world tells us and that we are part of an epic story that God is writing and his kingdom is here now and coming and that we can participate in it now, if we have a little bit of faith, he says you'll see mountains move. And so I'm I'm asking God for myself and for us that we would have a little bit of faith. And then we would start to see even more and more that what God said is true, that when Jesus came, he didn't just come as a baby in a nice story, but he came to start a revolution. And I wanna be a part of that. There's a lot of things, um, maybe you feel discouraged, uh, maybe you, feel like you have zero faith, and that's totally okay. Um, and maybe you feel hungry for more. Whatever it is, um, come up and pray. Cry out to God. We're going to have a prayer team up here. Come pray with someone. There's so much power when we pray together. There's so much power when we meet here together. There's so much power when we come hungry and tell our brother or sister, I want more. I know there's more, but I'm struggling. And this is what I'm dealing with. And this is what I'm doubting. And just come up and pray. But as we start singing, I'd encourage you to stand and sing if you want to. But if you don't, um, sit. Sit in silence. Let the words um, wash over you and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, whatever he wants to speak. Um, So feel free to do whatever the Lord is directing you in this moment. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start singing, and our prayer team is going to come to the front um, and encourage you to come up for prayer right away um, if you're feeling uh, prompting from the Lord right now. Father, thank you um, for your word. Thank you for Advent. Thank you for the arrival and coming of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not come in the way of the world. You didn't come in um, pride and authoritative rule, your kingdom doesn't coerce, your kingdom doesn't crush, your kingdom persuades by the beauty of the world that you made to reflect the glory of who you are. And so I'm thankful that Jesus, you're coming again. And when you come, make all things right and there's so much um, that isn't right in our world and in our lives even in this room and so we have another advent where we're waiting for you to come again and we know that you will but in the meantime may we not sit back and wait and be passive participants but may we step into the very mission 
that you started, Jesus. And it's the mission that you're carrying on and you're doing it through us. We are not alone. And the only way we do this is we learn to walk with you each day. That's the only way. And so there's a mix of different things that we've got in this room. And I just ask that you would prompt us, Holy Spirit, to deal with you, whatever that is. You would prompt us to come up and to get prayer and just to cry out with a friend and a family member. God, we need you. We ask that even in the joy and fun of this Christmas season, we would remember that you have started something and you're going to finish it and we get to be a part of it. We love you in Jesus' name.